ship only goes back 36 or so hours. So I've been desperately searching over the last 36 or so hours for some material that I could use for Pat's introduction, mainly because I did not want to give her less than my usual glowing five-page introduction. There are three things that I have come to realize and that have really reached out and grabbed me as I've looked for material for Pat's introduction. The first thing is the feeling that I have that I should be able to introduce Pat because I feel like we've been friends for a long time just in the short time that we've been together. She has that gift of making you feel very comfortable, very welcome, and very much at home. The only thing that's missing are the experiences that we might have shared, but I feel very much like I should be able to introduce her. The second thing is really her service. One of the things that I've noticed in my program in looking for the people that, that I think are the winners has really been their service that they've been involved in. And I know that from my service sponsor and from the stories that I've heard shared this weekend that Pat has made significant contributions in service at all levels of our program. The third and probably the most significant thing that reached out and grabbed me that I learned about Pat was when I sat down with her husband. And we had a few moments alone, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to get some material that I could use to introduce Pat. So we were sitting at the table alone, and I said, well, now this is a good time. You know, what can you tell me? And Cliff got quiet, and he got serious, and he said, that woman is a saint. She is the best person that I know. Now, I want to be honest with you. In the 36 hours or so that I've known Pat, I really don't think she's a saint. <laughs> I mean, I really don't see that trans transformation promised in our steps or our traditions or anything. But I do think that it's a very strong reflection of the program that she practices, that the person who has been her partner for 52 years thinks that she's a saint. I believe that Pat has a very strong story to share with us this morning, and I'm looking forward to that. I also believe that if we listen to this story with our hearts, that our higher power has something that will reach out and grab us too. Please help me welcome from Oceanside, California, Pat R. California. We don't go through all that when we introduce somebody. <laughs> I have to adjust for a moment. My name is Pat, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon, and I'm happy to be here. And, um, boy, Jeff seemed kind of shy at those chats we've had. He sure didn't, wasn't shy up here, was he? <laughs> I don't um, know how much to believe what he said about my husband saying I was a saint. Oh, but I'll take it. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll remind him of it from time to time. <laughs> this is, you've been wonderful. And uh, Barbara called me some while back, I don't know when, and uh, we began emailing and I really felt like I knew her. And I know some of you had that experience with people. And when we met, it, I felt like I must know what she looked like. That's what, she's a good emailer. Lots of chatting back and forth. So I felt acquainted before I got here. And uh, boy, we got the biggest basket of goodies in our room. You can tell an Alanon did that one. <laughs> All these little souvenirs of Georgia. A peach, which we've both eaten already. And some peanuts. And just about everything from George, I guess, except Jimmy Carter. And uh, I'd take him, too, if you give him to me. It's, you've been very generous, and Jeff has been a great host. 
meeting. Thank, I don't know what we did before cell phones, because we were wandering around the airport, and so was he, but not in exactly the same spot. And I don't know what we did before then. It's a fine age we live in. I like it. And I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, I know there's some alcoholics in the room. Are you willing to identify yourself? Oh, my God. We're outnumbered. <laughs> I love alcoholics. I'm sick. I love alcoholics. You know, that goes with the territory. What's very unusual, I want to congratulate you alcoholics, by the way, on having enough recovery to come to an Al-Anon meeting. I love listening to John last night. Um, he's from our general vicinity, and I get to hear him now and then. And I just, you know, I love the screwballs of this program. And he is a good one, isn't he? So screwy. You just love him. And, uh, and that's probably how I happened to pick the man I picked. Well, he was drunk when I met him, but... Uh, and, and he wasn't in good shape. He was in bad shape, actually. And... Uh, using a lot of four-letter words. This was in college right after the war. I didn't know what the four-letter words meant, by the way. I'd been raised in a little protection atmosphere. I knew the words. I just didn't know what word meant what thing. And, uh, and I was a little shocked at what he was saying, but sort of in my little heart, you know, thinking, this is an interesting person. And I said to my date, who happened to be his roommate, I didn't know that, I said, who is that? He said, well, that's Cliff Roach, and that's what he does when he drinks. And I said, so he tells me, not to him, my, his roommate, that man needs help. <laughs> and I believe that's the Ellen on four-letter word, help. <laughs> you just say help, and here I'll be. Okay, I'm better about that. I got a kick out of Bill reading are Al-Anon traditions. And those of you AAs who may not have heard them, they're a little different, aren't they? I hope you notice. It's weird to hear an alcoholic read them. <laughs> but, but well done, well done. We add a few lines. And if you're like we are, when you're sitting in a meeting, in an Al-Anon meeting, and someone's reading the traditions, it's not unusual for us to misread a word, especially newcomers. And we... Well, Cliff and I one time heard a newcomer, this was in an AA meeting, read, uh, our leaders are but twisted servants. <laughs> I love that one. And those of you that are on the committee, you know what I'm talking about, you know. No, no personal things here, Barbara, but we're a bunch of twisted people, those of us that do this kind of work. And, and the fun thing about the program, I think, is that we all love each other all the more, the nuttier we are and the more mistakes we make. But we say in our traditions, um, we should guard with special care, the anonymity of all AA members. And I heard an Al-Anon misread that one time, saying we should guard with special care the animosity of all <laughs> AA members. <laughs> I just love that kind of stuff. And I'm here to tell you my story, which um, my niece is here. She lives in Atlanta. And uh, she said, I've never heard your, your talk. And uh, I said, my God, you were there. She says, I don't remember it. So that's a problem. I don't think she's got a drinking problem. I don't know where she was. But it's so funny to me because my, my husband and I can give a, talks at the same convention and you'd think you were talking about two different households. And we have the foggiest notion of what really went on. Um, our oldest daughter is probably the best one to tell it. She was the oldest of five kids and in an alcoholic family, that's the one that takes charge, and she did. But we really laugh sometimes. Uh, our perspective is a little different, my husband's and mine. I think mine has a better chance of being accurate in the fact that he was drunk. <laughs> but not always, of course. This business of being involved with alcoholism, I'll tell you, my mom was an alcoholic. She didn't call herself that. To the day she died, she didn't call herself an alcoholic. Some of us would say, do you suppose she's an alcoholic? Because back then, you know, we, we weren't sure what that was anyway. And um, the only example we had around us that we knew of was a cousin, a distant cousin named Ross, 
who used to just sit in his chair and, and be drunk whenever we'd go to their house. And then apparently, Ross, now I realize, he went to AA, I guess, back, way back. And, um, and he got different. And my mom and dad said, you know, he's the strangest thing. He runs around with this blue book, or a little book, and he just runs around all the time talking to these drunks. It's very strange, they thought, very strange. So mom didn't call herself an alcoholic, and those of us that knew her well didn't hesitate by the time she died. You know, we say in here, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, right? And it quacks like a duck. We talk about ducks a lot in this program. <laughs> Someone in Nebraska once said that he came into Al-Anon and he had all his ducks lined up and he found out they weren't his ducks. <laughs> 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 no. That's the story of my life. Barbara gave him permission to talk to 1.30. How's that grab you? I'm not going to do that. I don't think. <laughs> well, I was born and raised in a small town in, in, uh, in California called Los Gatos, which if you speak Spanish, you know I didn't say it correctly because it was settled by Midwesterners. And uh, it should be pronounced Los Gatos, but Midwesterners decided to call it Los Gatos, so that's what it's called. And my parents were both from Midwest, and they were good people. And they were uh, people with values, and they were hardworking people. And I was raised in a very small town where everybody knew me, and that has its advantages and its disadvantages, um, because I never got away with anything. I remember trying cigarettes out behind, behind the Los Gatos pharmacy, and Kirk and Bill came out and found me. Those are the owners, and they picked me up and said, I'm going to take you home to your father. You know, you don't get away with much. It's not that I, I think I, I would have probably tried a few more things if I thought I got, got away with it, but I wasn't a real daring soul anyway. But I had a good life. I have an older sister and my grandmother who pretty much was around my life as I grew up. And they were all good people. Yes, my mom drank too much. Um, she was, I learned later when I came in this program, a periodic alcoholic. I didn't know there was such a thing. But I'm very clear on that now. She would go for many months, six months, especially in the earlier years, not drink and not be uncomfortable at all. And then she'd start in on that vodka and orange juice through a straw, which I never, I don't know what she thought fooling us, I guess. We thought it was a soda pop or something, but she would drink for a few weeks. And she would be um, mostly maudlin and unpleasant. Rarely was she a big problem. Uh, but I did learn something. We learned to keep that a secret. And I haven't met a single person in these programs who hasn't had something. Now, I didn't eat a peanut before First Communion, but <laughs> God love you. I love that story of John's. I wasn't Catholic, so it wouldn't have mattered. But, uh, but we kept secrets. And I don't know if it was so much our family or if that's what people did then. Uh, uh, see, Bill, you didn't make your announcement. Bill usually says, we're already impressed that you have a cell phone. <laughs> Did I suitably embarrass somebody? Yeah. Yeah. She would make phone calls around midnight. Now, I have to tell you, I'm no kid. In those days, we had a phone on the wall, and we took the receiver off, and we told the operator who we wanted to talk to. So at midnight, she'd pick up the phone and say she wanted to talk to Ethel, or somebody, and the operator would say, oh, Pauline, Ethel's in sleep. Go back to bed. You know. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a big secret, but uh, for our little life it was. And we did learn to keep secrets, and we learned, and the family did that, but I think a lot of people were like that then. And I uh, um, had a good life. Good values. Mom didn't like housekeeping one bit, and I sure didn't learn anything about that. But she was a good cook. And best of all, she liked to chase fire engines. <laughs> I mean it. The bell would go off downtown, and away we'd go. We didn't have a car. I mean, my dad had a car, but he was gone. And we'd, we'd start going, trying to find the fire. And that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. <laughs> so I grew up with many laughs, and my mother was one of the funniest people I've ever known. And anyone who knew her well knew that. She had a wonderful, witty sense of humor. A lot of laughs. And I, I recall my father more as, as a quiet, steady man. 
who began feeling responsible for her drinking. Interesting how that happened. And um, I used to be irritated with him when she would get drunk at the wrong time, such as come down to the high school and appear when I was doing something that I didn't, you know, they came to see me and she'd be drunk and I'd be mad at him. And now, of course, those chickens were to come home to roost because I can't count the number of times my own kids, one or the other of them, would say to me, Mom, if you would just keep your mouth shut, you know, that wouldn't happen. Or can't you stop him from getting drunk? Um, and I would be so puzzled. The problem was I thought I ought to be stopping him from getting drunk. I was still trying to figure that out. And I went all 12 miles away to college right after the war ended. And I want to tell you, what a time to go to college. Because all the guys came out of the service on the GI Bill. They were lots of them. <laughs> and they were war heroes, they told me. And uh, I was raised to be patriotic. I still am. And I just had a blast in college. I had a wonderful time at San Jose State. Such a wonderful time that I forgot to go to class a lot. <laughs> but I met this guy. Now, the first time I met him, I certainly didn't fall in love with him. I don't want you to think I was that sick. But uh, the second time I met him, we were walking across campus. I have no idea if he remembered me because I suspect he didn't remember much from that night. But he began, we just began chatting and walking and a bee came up and began flying around his face. And you know how a bee will stick with you? Well, he dropped his books and he started having a boxing match with that bee. That's one of the funniest things I ever saw in my life. <laughs> I laughed so hard and I sat down by a tree there, I remember, in San Jose and the traffic was stopping along San Carlos Street. They couldn't see the bee. They could just see this little guy out there doing this. And I just laughed so hard, and I thought, you know, I'm going to kind of keep an eye on this fella. Um, he was a, a, a drama major, and those of you who have heard him talk won't be astonished to hear that. Very talented, and uh, was going to become a star, and I thought that was a good idea, too. And so I hitched my wagon to that star, and, um, and I did that for a long time. What I'm saying, especially to you Alanons, you'll know what I mean. <clears throat> I became a reflection of what he did. And then we had these kids. Um, I did a lot of things trying to uh, control his drinking. We talk about that a lot in here. And for anybody who might be kind of new, in Alanon we talk about the three C's, which is I, didn't, I don't cause alcoholism, I can't cure it, and I forgot the other one. How's that for getting along in years, huh? Huh? I can't control it. The most important word of all. <laughs> I wonder why Freud would think I forgot that one, huh? Well, I was trying to control his drinking, of course, and also trying to control his anger, because he was an angry man. And while my mother was an alcoholic, but, you know, her drinking had become quite a problem by then, she was very rarely angry. I guess she got pretty mean-spirited with my father during the later years, but I wasn't living there. I just simply heard about that from other family members. But she was not mean to me, and I didn't have that angry kind of thing to live with. But he was an angry human being, drinking or not. Well, he explained why to me. By the way, he was a drama major, and I have to admit at this moment that I was a psychology major. <laughs> Our Al-Anon rooms are just loaded with us, aren't they? And social workers and nurses and teachers the little helpers of the world. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed hanging out with the drama students because they're, they love somebody paying attention to them and um, analyzing them. Well, I love doing it. They got so much attention from me, they loved it. And I felt so important. But it was, a, it was fun, a whole lot of fun. But I got real scared when he uh, got so angry and um, did what I could to control his anger. That meant easing his load in life. That meant not having have to get him have to get anxious about anything, like the checkbook, little things like that. Um, you know, how we manage to pay our bills. Don't, don't upset him. Um, I don't know that he ever asked me to do that stuff, by the way, but if he got a little irritated, I ran to the rescue, because I just didn't know, I hated that. 
anything to keep him from getting angry. Some of you may know it didn't work. For a little while it would. It would appear to work. I w he also wanted me to help him to control his drinking, by the way. I think that's an important piece here. Um, there were times where he would get way too drunk when he really didn't want to. Um, and, and But he knew he would drink. And we'd be going somewhere and he'd say, he'd say um, would you kind of keep your eye on me? <laughs> I knew how to do that. And if you notice that I need to stop, would you just come and whisper in my ear and say, Honey, it's time to stop now. <laughs> you said that to me. So I would do that. I could tell when it was time. His glasses would start to slide down his nose. <laughs> and I would do just what he asked me to. I'd say, Honey, it's time to stop now. And he'd use one of those four-letter words. And my feelings would be hurt, and I'd be very puzzled. And the next day, he'd claim he didn't even remember it. Now, that's a bunch of you-know-what. What an excuse. I thought, I mean, blackouts? Come on. What a way to get away with something. I just don't remember. <laughs> but, you know, like any of us preparing for Al-Anon, I got pretty good at using that to my advantage, because if he couldn't remember... I'd make up something, <laughs> even if, you know, it wasn't true, it didn't matter to me, even if it had been a quiet evening, you know, if he couldn't remember it, he was always a little worried when he'd wake up, you know, uh-oh, and so I'd fill him in, deciding basically on what I needed to get out of him for the next week or whatever long I could keep the guilt going, which is, by the way, another thing I learned at my mother's knee, and I don't know why, how I learned it, I just knew that if I caught her on the morning after, so to speak, and she was feeling guilty, and she was having, um, and, and didn't admit there was a reason to feel guilty. Had bruises on her, didn't know how she got them, that there were a lot of ways I could manipulate and get my way certain times. And I'm not very proud of that. And I uh, often, when I look at those kind of things that I learned to do to manipulate alcoholism, largely, I realized that in doing that, I was simply compromising my own principles time and time again. I don't like being a manipulated person. I don't like being a liar. I don't like being a person to hide things and keep secrets from people that should be knowing the truth. I don't like that in me. But boy, I tell you, I got good at a lot of those things. And I don't blame myself for that any more than I blame my husband for being an alcoholic. It was alcoholism at work and my complete lack of understanding and my desperate need to control something. Of course, as many of us in this room know, it's all an illusion of control anyway. It just looks that way, and it's kind of fun when it happens. Uh, even with Mom, I could drive out. My dad used to call me when I was in college and ask me to come out and talk to her because she was drinking a bit too much, and maybe she'd listen to me. So I'd go talk to her, and I had two ways of talking to her. One was to scold her because I was old enough to do that now, and another was to just pretend like it wasn't all that big a deal. You know, Dad was overreacting. Neither, of course, was a very healthy way to respond, but that's what I'd do. And, you know, she seemed to quit drinking. Like, oh, she listened to me. Well, I learned here that a periodic is going to quit when they quit. And if I could time it right, just right, I felt like I did it. <laughs> you know, alcoholism and living with an alcoholic is kind of like living with slot machines. You know, you, they just pay off just often enough. <laughs> just keep your... Absolutely. And those payoffs were worth it all the way through. I remember thinking of that when I was at Reno. I love the slots. I'm cheap, just the quarter slots. But, you know, playing away on a slot machine and the guy next to me, slot machine is really paying off. Thinking maybe, and then he gets up and leaves. And I'm thinking, maybe I ought to move over. And I'm thinking, no, I got too much invested in this one. <laughs> or the other thought. No, it'd be just my luck I'd go over there and somebody else will get the jackpot. Well, I got the jackpot when he came into AA, and not just because he came into AA. That was certainly a wonderful blessing, but because it brought me to Alamo. That's my jackpot. But we had a whole lot of fun. And as time went on, one of the things I did, I had married a member of the CIA, if you know what that is, a Catholic Irish alcoholic. 
He was half Catholic and half Irish, but he was not half alcoholic. <laughs> and I had no idea about this stuff. And um, he wasn't practicing his religion at the time. And, um, but he decided at some point, my dad was a little startled. He's a member of the Masonic Lodge and very devoted to all of that. And at that time, there was a little oil and water conflict between the Masons and the Catholics. But, um, of course, he won my mother over right away. They had a little drinking pal now. And I, he went back to his church. We'd been married a few years. And, um, and I know today, and I think I kind of knew then, that he was looking for some kind of a spiritual help. Um, and, you know, it seemed to me when he went back, I was a little skeptical about this. I wondered about all the incense smell and stuff. What's all that all mean? Kind of mumbo-jumbo stuff, you know. But when he, um, when he went back to that church, he got a little softer, I felt. It didn't seem to me he was as angry. And maybe he drank a little less. So I checked that church out, and I decided to keep him there. So I joined it. And I want to tell you, and I was a member of the Catholic Church for quite a few years, and I have nothing but great appreciation for my time there and the structure it gave me and, the, and the, um, a place for me to settle in and settle down. And I'm very grateful for that today. I have no criticisms whatsoever. Um, actually, it didn't work. For one thing, I had no idea the priests drank as much as they do. <laughs> and our house was full of priests all the time. I mean, they know a party house when they see one. Well, that was kind of hard, you know. What do you say to priests that get drunk? Bless you, Father? No, I don't think so. Um, and our house was a real party house, and it was a lot of fun. We also, because I was a Catholic for a while, we have five children. And I'll tell you today, I am so grateful for those. But they have the best five kids anybody could have in the world. And they always have been. A few of them are alcoholics, surprise, surprise, and some of the others have their little ups and downs, but they're just wonderful kids, and I'm very blessed. If nothing else, they've kept me coming to Al-Anon, I'll tell you. <laughs> I didn't need them to keep me coming. This guy got sober, but he's just as nutty as he ever was, so, you know, and I love the program, so I would keep coming anyway. We had these five kids, and we were busy. I got busy. Um, he was a school teacher, and he had a kind of a high-profile school teaching job, and then he coached a debate team, and they won a lot, so they won trophies and things. So his name was in the paper, and people knew who he was, and he wasn't a quiet little drunk that sat in a rocking chair like my mother. He got out there among them, I'll tell you, and he was loud. And he, everybody in town knew Cliff Roach had a little drinking problem. It was a small enough town. We moved to Oceanside, which is near San Diego. And, um, and I, of course, was trying to keep that a secret. And that, that's ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. But we'd have these wonderful parties. What you do to keep the neighbors from being upset with that is invite them. If they don't want to come, that's their problem. You know, but we'd invite them. And everybody would come to our house. My, mo my father had died, and my mother had moved in with us. And, uh, of course, she, uh, she and Cliff got along beautifully. And um, she was in a party house that was one of the happiest. She told me time and again. This is one of the happiest times of my life. I'll betcha. <laughs> and everybody loved Pauline. She was on a little walker. She'd broken her hip. She didn't remember how she did that. She thought it was odd it had never hurt. <laughs> so it didn't hurt when I broke my hip. I didn't even know I did it, you know. Um, it hurt later, so that's how she was given little pain pills. Now, Mom was still a periodic, pretty much, but she became a daily pill head. And now Cliff was a daily alcoholic by this time, but he had discovered pills through his physician cousin, who's I think had a problem too, <laughs> supplied him with stuff called Relaximin. Can you imagine a pill called Relaximin? Ooh, it worked. And uh, whatever. And so he had discovered goody pills, and so in one way or another, and so he would uh, be a daily alcoholic and a periodic pill head. And meanwhile, my kids were reaching the age of teenagers, ages, and uh, three of them were teenagers at once in the late 60s. And in Southern California, gosh, I'm sure it wasn't like that in Atlanta, but <laughs> there were strange little things out there in the world for children that age. 
Now, all of our kids didn't get into drugs. Well, I found out later that more were into it than I thought, but <laughs> it was only one I was clearly aware of. But you see, they, when you have a lot of kids and you have an open house, so to speak, you have a lot of other kids in the house all the time. And, you know, teenagers all look alike. They're supposed to look alike. In those days, they, their hair was part of the middle and it was straight. They ironed it if it wasn't straight. And uh, they had all had jeans on with holes in them. And uh, peace medals, big peace medals around their necks. That the, the art teacher at the high school made them. He was at our house often for our parties. And he's now, he's now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, thank God. But... Um, uh, it was a weird household, and, and I didn't understand some of the strange um, behavior of these many kids. They all blend in, and because I began giving piano lessons, which I didn't know how to do, but did anyway because God knows somebody needed to earn some extra money. <laughs> and uh, And I got pretty good at it. I have no idea why. I'd learned how to play the piano, but I certainly hadn't been taught how to teach the piano. But I just did it. And I, the only thing I can figure out is that the city of Oceanside needed piano teachers right then, because when I came in this program in 1970, I was giving 37 piano lessons a week. That's a lot. How do I remember that? It's because every day of his life, I told him I was giving 37 piano lessons. <laughs> He forgot it, but I remember. He'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was busy, very busy. And I had these five kids, and I did a pretty good job with them overall. That is, I got, saw that they got their needs met more than their needs met, and that they were taking the places they needed to be when they needed to be there, and they got the lessons they needed to get, and they, and so forth. Kept track of their grades and knew their teachers and did the things that good mothers do. And I liked that. I liked that. I also participated in community activities because I'd been raised to do that. My parents were active in their community, and so was I. So there I was, of course, on some committee or other, and my neighbors in the cul-de-sac where the kids grew up had learned to depend on me to start their day off well. They had a cup of coffee with me, and I would give them my best psychological knowledge about whatever. You know. They didn't have the same background I did, so whatever I said sounded great to them. No, and when you live with a lot of drunks, you look good anyway. Um, I often say, you know, it's real, real easy to look good being married to a drunk. I say the word drunk affectionately. Um, I mean, you don't have to do anything. You just hang out with them long enough, and they'll do something bad enough that you've got to look good. Anybody does. I hated being called a saint. Cliff knows that. That's probably why he said that. <laughs> if he said it hated it, because I wasn't proud of myself. I was looking like a saint, but then they say I do all these things that made me look so wonderful, and I just took on more and more responsibility, and all the while trying to keep his drinking under control so that he wouldn't lose his job, and we wouldn't lose our reputation, which is pretty funny right now when I look back, because this was not a man who sat in a rocking chair. Um, I remember, I, I didn't remember this till we'd been in the program a little while, you know, more will be revealed to us, and uh, he hadn't come home, and I'm looking out the window at five in the morning, and dawn is coming, and there he is on the front lawn, spread-eagled, stark naked. <laughs> and we lived on a corner where everybody, Susan, Susan remembers our corner. Everybody drove by our corner. They drove by and came in, you know, we were there. And, um, but that wasn't so bad, except he was surrounded by the paper boys. <laughs> oh, looking down. Well, there I am. And I think, you know, many of us on the way to Al-Anon, we developed some very clever skills because I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to save our reputation? So I thought quick, and I dashed out, and I told those paper boys that Mr. Roach was practicing a new form of meditation. <laughs> I'm real proud of that one. And uh, we can do anything, can't we? Can't we, Eleanor? <laughs> when I remembered that and was telling him, I said, my God, I remember that. And he said, oh, jeez. He said, which end was up? <laughs> 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 well, 
want to know, you know, and I didn't remember that hurt his feelings, you know. <laughs> Who cared? <laughs> I mean, first things first here, you know. I got him to take antibuse, sent him to a, a psychiatrist, and um, the psychiatrist prescribed antibuse, which I hadn't known existed. Being a, I had minored in chemistry and stuff, so I went running down to the medical library at our nearby university and looked up antibuse. I don't know to this day what I really learned there, but I decided that he could take one on Monday and one on Tuesday and a half of one on Wednesday, and he could safely drink on Friday because we both knew by then that he wouldn't make it through a whole week. Maybe he could get through a week of teaching. And so he usually complied. Um, he would take his little... Then he wouldn't, and uh, he'd come home drunk, and I'd think, well, that's funny. He took a pill, and then he didn't, of course. So then I began, got in the habit of popping that pill in his mouth in the morning. And, and you know when you give a dog a pill, how you stroke their throat? And, <laughs> and one of my kids said, we never, we thought, what a strange, affectionate little gesture you would send him off to school. <laughs> but you know, if his Adam's apple went up and down, I knew I was going to have a good day. And that's what my life had become if I could just get a few hours or a day where he probably wouldn't get drunk. Well, the psychiatrist died, which really pissed me off. And um, so we, I didn't have a supply. And we lived close to the Mexican border. <laughs> and I would take my, his serpent wagon and uh, put my small child in the front seat. I always had a small child in the car seat. And um, I would go down to Mexico and put her in a stroller. And I would go from pharmacy to pharmacy to pharmacy getting antibuse. Now, I did that because I didn't want one of those Mexican pharmacists to realize how much antibuse I was buying. <laughs> the alcoholics in the room know what I'm talking about here because you guys went from liquor store to liquor store so people wouldn't figure out how much you were drinking. I know about that. And then I'd have this contraband material. So I would think, how am I going to get it back across the border? And I would, so I'd buy a piñata and stuff it with antibuse. <laughs> and now who's going who's gonna to question? Here I am in my two-piece polyester pantsuit and my bubble hairdo in my little station wagon with my little child and a piñata. Who's going to question me? But I'd get scared because you have to wait a long time at that border. And I think, uh-oh, this time they may catch me. And this is a federal offense. Well, if they put me in prison and they take my small child to a shelter, then he'll know the sacrifices I've gone to for him. <laughs> oh, he never made it to Friday night, by the way. He drank on Thursday and turned funny colors and got all blotchy. Big red blotches. If you've ever seen anybody do that, that's dangerous. It's not funny, but it got kind of funny because he'd get real anxious and his heart would beat, and I sort of liked that. You know, he'd get real, what's going on? And then he'd just have these big glowing Thursday nights. And uh, in fact, some of the neighbors came to expect that. I mean, let's go over and watch Mr. Roach glow. What's Thursday night? You know? <laughs> but I was getting tired somehow. can't imagine why. I also began noticing that sometimes those kids smelled musty. Uh, that's what I called it. What's wrong? Aren't they washing their hair? What is this smell? Well, they were also really easy to get along with when they smelled <laughs> musty. Really cool. And they called everything beautiful. I mean, bad stuff was quite beautiful. And I could get them to agree to anything when they smelled musty. They never did anything, but they'd agree to anything. <laughs> then there were these other times where I'd find these little white pills with crosses on them, and I noticed how busy they got. <laughs> busy, busy. Now, I say they. I'm not sure which kids. I know one for sure. And the others were probably neighbor kids. And, but now I've learned since then that another one of mine was doing it, too, but I didn't catch on at that point. And I didn't know what that was about either. But I knew one thing, they'd do anything I asked them to. They'd scrub my floors and wash my car all night. And 
It was very handy. Now, they didn't go to school the next day because <laughs> they crashed, you know. But um, now I didn't understand a lot of these things. So some of the other little things were strange looking. And I had a friend on the Oceanside Police Department, a juvenile detective. I look back and I think, my God, I was narking on my own kids. But he was a friend and I didn't think about it. And I just said, what is this stuff and what is this stuff? And he'd tell me. And he'd say, well, that's the hallucinogenic and you probably... You know, you want to watch for these side effects. <laughs> I just, I think back about it. I think he didn't, you know, he could have busted any of my kids if he wanted to. One of them did get busted in high school. He bust, got busted selling the best brand of hashish Oceanside High ever saw. And uh, talk about not keeping secrets or keeping secrets. Um, the radio station in Oceanside at that time had an announcer named Al. And Al and Cliff would show up at the same school board meetings, both drinking, and they, didn't, they had different opinions on a lot of things, and they would really put on a scene at the school board meetings. So there wasn't a lot of um, fondness between those two. And when our son got busted, Al, they announced the news every hour on that station. Al would an announce every hour on the our son's whole name, and he was 16. I didn't know then. I don't know what it is now, but they told me it's a gentleman's agreement with the media. It's not a law. It may be a law today, but it wasn't then, because I was astonished. And they were announcing his name and what had happened. And um, actually, Cliff had moved out of the house by then, now that I think of it, which was kind of nice. 20 years of marriage, and that's the first time we were separated. Um, some of the people in the school district called a uh, radio station complaining that they were announcing a juvenile's name. So then Al announced the juvenile's name and said that the school district people were calling him because his father, Cliff Roach, was a teacher at Oceanside High. <laughs> Talk about secrets. Well, that secret was out, I'll tell you. And you know what I learned, and I don't think I fully appreciated it right then, is that the very people I thought I shouldn't let know about the bad things that might be happening in my family were the ones who were there for me. They were wonderful. The neighbors were wonderful. Nobody ever criticized. And here I thought, oh my God, you've got to keep anybody from knowing the truth. And they weren't concerned. They probably had their own secrets, to tell you the truth. But they were loving and good people, and we'd made good friends in that town, and good friends in the neighborhood. Some of them drank a little much. Um, of course, most of the people that came for the parties drank a little much. But I was getting tired, and... Uh, it was kind of about then, and it was in early January of, um, of 1970. And you know, it's funny because I hear drunks commonly from the podium talk about their last drink and how it was kind of a fizzle of a drink, big deal. They had a glass of wine. If they'd known that was going to be their last drink, they sure would have done better than that. It was like that for me because what happened in our house was one kid, our 10-year-old son, looked scared one time too many. Of course, I'd been walking around scared a long time, and I'd made a lot of decisions out of fear that weren't good decisions, but they'd be made out of fear. And that kid looked scared one time too many. It was not a great big scene. It was just as simple as that. And all I know as I looked at that kid, I had not grown up in fear, and my children were. And I just knew that I couldn't have that anymore for them. I didn't know how I was going to manage financially. Uh, I did give piano lessons, that's for sure, and Cliff had always threatened that, by God, he was going to go over the hill or something. Or he'd say, I'm going down the tubes. Now, I don't, never knew what that meant, but I had to do something about it, whatever it was. <laughs> oh, my God, you're going down to the tubes? I've got to do something. <laughs> and uh, none of that happened to me. I had, I just, and I know, I understand today that I was getting some strong spiritual help. And I wouldn't have labeled it anything. It doesn't matter. I know that it was another place inside of me. Not the fear. And it wasn't the guilt and all the other kind of things I'd built up. It was just a sense of some, I'm getting some help here. And I knew I was. Another piece of me was able to come forth. And it was a place of trust of some kind. So he moved out, which was delightful. I told him to, and he did. And that's not easy sometimes. Some of you can't get rid of your drunks. Um, and it was wonderful. I had no idea how, how, how I'd had a stomachache for all those years. I didn't even know I had it till I quit having it. And I, and I recognized how differently I was, how different I was with the kids when they come home from school. 
Oh, if they had a problem, I wouldn't rush them off into the back room and tell them he'd quietly deal with it so he wouldn't upset Daddy, which is not my idea of being a good parent, by the way. Instead, I'd deal with it then and now, and I began getting all these little clues about myself and who I had become in the midst of this disease. Um, however, this time he went back to AA. I say back to AA because he'd been in and out for five years. I wasn't all that impressed. He was worse when he was sober than when he drank. My God, he was crazy. Of course, one time he was taking diet pills and I didn't know it, so it explained a lot later, but <laughs> woohoo, you know. But this time he went to this strange little man that lived around the block called Bill Blake. Now, Bill had been popping in and out of our house uninvited for these years on and off, and he'd been in AA all these years. And I wasn't all that thrilled with Bill uh, because Bill was weird. He owned an electric company in Oceanside, and um, on the wall of his electric company was a picture of himself, which had been taken by the Oceanside Planning Commission, and it had been on the front page of our newspaper. And it was demonstrating the need for downtown redevelopment. Bill was drunk, and he was leaning on a parking meter, and from the back you could obviously tell he was relieving himself. And this picture taken in downtown Oceanside was the pride of his life. Had on the wall of his damn office. He's so proud of that. Now, Bill had been sober for eight years, and I, um, and I failed because I was very busy with an image. I failed to recognize the, and I use the word miracle here, of this Bill, whose picture was up there, was at the moment the chairman of the Planning Commission of Oceanside. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous had done for him. From being the poster boy <laughs> to being the chairman of the Planning Commission. But you see, I was much too involved in protecting our reputation to recognize what that meant, what that meant. So he began going to these AA meetings. And I went with him because God knows now I had to keep track of something else. And I, and I'm, and Bill and Margie, Margie, uh, it was an alcoholic woman as well. And they hauled us everywhere. They hauled him more than they did me. But I went, and I went to hear speakers, these wonderful speakers. Well, I didn't think they were all that wonderful. Some man named Chuck C. God, you, you know, you thought he was God Almighty, the way they talked about him. Well, I went to listen and tried to keep an open mind, not really, but, you know. And this man would say these supposedly great spiritual things, and then he'd go, Listen to his tapes. He's been dead many years, but listen to his tapes. Is that spiritual? <laughs> That's what I know. And then we went to hear Clancy, who was Bill's sponsor. And the first thing Clancy said to me, actually, we didn't hear him speak first. We went to his backyard to play volleyball with all these sober, newly sober drunks. Everybody vied for position to clean up the dog poop. That was their great... And uh, if anybody got to clean up the dog poop, got some kind of a star, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and the first thing Clancy said to me was, um, he took me over to meet his wife, Charlotte, and uh, he said, uh, this is Pat. And Cliff found her in the gutter, waiting for an alcoholic to come along and abuse her. <laughs> and if you know Clancy, you know that's right out of his mouth. I want to tell you today that I'm very fond of Clancy and we're good friends, but I had a few bad years in there. Um, <laughs> we're very good friends, and uh, he doesn't intimidate me for a second, and that's kind of fun. So I wasn't impressed, but at the same time I had to hang around. And Bill would come running in my house and he would say, Pat, you need to go to Aladon. Oh, Bill, I was a psychology major, I don't need that stuff. And he would leave pamphlets around, and I would give them to my neighbor, who certainly needed them. And um, he would do it again, and he would burst in my house without even knocking. Rude little man. And um, I would be running over to uh, Margie, though, who lived around the corner, because I would get so exasperated. I mean, he's sober. This isn't something supposed to be better, instead of worse. He had a real rough time the first few years of sobriety. And um, I would go over there yelling and yelling and yelling, and she would yell back at me. And she'd say, Pat, you have to trust. 
And I would scream, I can't trust him. She says, I don't mean Cliff, I don't trust him either. I mean, God, I'm talking about God. I'm going, oh, okay. So that woman was very valuable to me. And uh, at some point, Bill seemed to figure me out after a couple months. He got me figured out, that disgusting little alcoholic who I came to love. And we became close friends, too. And he sat me down one day. He didn't come rushing in. He even had the courtesy to knock. And we sat on the couch, and he was quieter than usual. He said, you know, Pat, I checked out. The Ocean, the Al-Anon meetings in Oceanside, and I think they could use your help. <laughs> A wonderful little manipulative alcoholic knew just what to do, and that was actually St. Patrick's Day of 1970, and that is my Al-Anon birthday because I went to a meeting that night. But. But I came to help you. I mean, look at my great organizational skills, couldn't you see? Look at all I was accomplishing. And you needed me because when you read your traditions, you even said you were not organized. You bragged about it. <laughs> so I said about helping. I, um, had, I did my first little piece of Ellen on service the next week. There's an old lady in that meeting named Millie, and I hope all your meetings have an old lady named Millie. I'm probably one of them now, but um, Millie was, um, well, she was just Millie. And there's a, a, how can I describe her? Very grouchy lady with a clear idea of the traditions who never let you get away with anything. And uh, God, I, I, you know, today I appreciate those people so much. But Millie had my number right away. And she said, I want you to stand at the door next week and, and greet a newcomer if they come. And so I could do that because I'd been a sorority girl and I stood in receiving lines. I didn't have a clue. And um, I want to tell you, though, the next week I did that, of course, with pride. I could show them all how to do that right. And the first person to come in the door, I think there was only one newcomer that night, and she, I said my name, and um, she said her name, and she said, I'm scared. And I said, so am I. And I didn't even know I was scared till the words came out of my mouth. And how many times in a meeting have I heard myself saying something I didn't even know was in there? Thought, why is that? I don't know. I think it's because I was feeling safe already. Don't know why. And um, then Millie decided I needed to help with something in San Diego, which is 30 miles away. And she said she couldn't drive. I don't believe her. She's dead now, but I don't think she, I think she could drive. But she could get us all to these places she wanted us to be by needing a ride, and we help, you know, so I'd give Millie a ride. And she hauled me to San Diego, or I hauled her to San Diego, and uh, she was there putting together the first San Diego, what we call intergroup in 1970. And um, the people putting that together were struggling and arguing, and you know how we are when we're in service, we change personalities. You know, we get a cause, and we're right, and we do that. Well, it was, they were acting differently than they did in our little al meeting, real differently. They were being mean to each other. And I got, I got kind of scared. I thought, ooh, what's going on? And one of the women stopped them and said, you know what, we're not putting principles above personalities here. Let's say the serenity prayer and begin again. Well, I certainly read that tradition and heard it read, as many of us, and probably theorized about it, because that's what I did. But I watched it happen. And I watched those people put that wonderful 12th tradition to work. And I knew something was happening to me. I knew I watched something very important in front of me. I got very quiet, which isn't my usual way. I remember being very quiet. Well, God in his wisdom, I went home that day, and our 14-year-old daughter, who I hadn't thought was into stuff yet, but was, um, was arguing with me. And she always wanted to do, she wanted to play with the 21-year-olds, is what she wanted. And I had developed the pattern with her of giving in to her more than she deserved to be given into. She deserved a parent that didn't do that. Her dad was the maddest at her most of the time because she had a big mouth. She was, da, 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 da. so he'd right back at her. So those two were always at it, and I felt bad for her. So I would compensate by giving in to her. So that meant she didn't even have one responsible parent, if you think about it. 
But today I came back, that day I came back, and she was yelling at me and arguing and determined, and I was saying no. And she said something I'd never heard from a kid before or since. She said, I hate you. And none of my kids had ever said that to me. And I answered her differently than I think I ever would have. I told her it was more important for me to like myself than it was for her to like me. And I was putting principles of her personalities. And I knew it. I don't know that I could have explained it the way I just did, but I knew it. And I knew I was going to be a good, responsible mother again. And I knew I was getting that now and on. And Jan remembers that. She says, boy, you, my mom sure went into neutral. Uh, that's what she calls it. And you know, it is kind of a shifting gears when I think about it. She doesn't forget that stuff. Um, those kids were to pursue their little alcoholic course. Three of them are now sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I don't say anything about them from the podium that they haven't given me permission to say or that they don't say themselves. Um, that one, was she got sober somewhere along the line um, at about, uh, I don't even know what year anymore. I know her little kid was four years old and she was uh, alone with him. And um, preceding that, I went through the thing a lot of us do with kids. And that is, how, where do I belong in her life? How do I help and where do I not? Because I knew what she was doing, and yet she had a child. And that's not an easy place to be. And any of us that have kids know that. And it was a constant dilemma. What, how do you do this? What's the right thing to do? And I got a harsh lesson because um, I was, uh, she was really broke, and I gave her 100 bucks. And the next day I was walking down the streets of Oceanside and ran into one of her old classmates. And Barbara said, oh, Mrs. Roach, so good to see you. Guess what? I saw Jan last night. And she came into some money, so we had a party. My $100 is what she came into. But, you know, I sort of got the message. But what I learned from that is that I don't have to make a decision about my children, or didn't then, they're pretty much more grown now, that becomes a great tradition. It doesn't mean I have to do it every day. If I do something today, it's just today. And I don't have to do it tomorrow if I don't want to. I don't have to decide something and have myself stuck in that decision. And that's one of the great lessons of Elman for me. Margie hauled me to um, Laguna Beach because there was a lot more old-time Elman on there. Uh, Elsa, who was Chuck's wife, who was much more spiritual than him, but she never got any credit for it. <laughs> and my sponsor lives there. Her name is Karen. And, um, and so I had the best of all worlds. I had my local Oceanside, which there weren't very many Elanons going on there. And I had the old solid-rooted Laguna Beach, which isn't far from where I live. And Margie was kind enough to take me to that place, this alcoholic woman, and see that I also got exposure to some of the, some of the older members of Elanon, and I'm very grateful for that today. Um, grateful for a lot of things today I didn't particularly appreciate as much at the time. Um, I heard wonderful stuff. When I was working my steps, I was struggling, as many of us do, with the character defects. I like better when we call them shortcomings. <laughs> Doesn't sound so bad. But um, because it seemed to me the defects that I was uncovering after I did my, my fourth and fifth were also my strengths, and I couldn't understand that. And it was Elsa that said to me, try looking at them as character traits that you can use well or you can use badly. And it helped me so much because I think a lot of, I think that's true of many of us. It certainly is of me. Many of the very things about me that are very worthwhile, I just really overused <laughs> or used them in bad time. A sense of humor is one of them. It's real easy when you've got a sense of humor to be sarcastic. It's also very easy to use humor instead of dealing with reality. And uh, there's a whole lot of more things. And I was very gifted, I think, in my early days to have all this great wisdom around me. Um, Elsa would also say, there's no amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I don't like that one. <laughs> but I remember it, and I try to practice that. My sponsor told me it was time. I didn't have to wait till I worked those steps to use the tenth step, which is apologizing, of course, promptly admitting it. Well, I said, why is that? And she said, well, you're probably saying some things that you could apologize for. And I said, oh, well, yeah, but you ought to hear him. She said, well, try to apologize for your part. Then I was griping. I said, I left him off. I don't want to let him off the hook. 
Just do it. Well, I finally did it. Not happily, but I didn't want to have to answer to her. Many of us have that. We got the exact same thing with a sponsor. And I, so we had had a nasty argument, and it was not nice. It was very not nice. And I turned around and walked out of the room and thought about, okay, maybe I better think about this. And I thought, well, I suppose I didn't have to mention his dead mother. <laughs> I mean, I never met her, but uh, look what she'd raised, you know. So I thought, okay, I've got to do this thing. I've got to do this thing. And I walked back, and I want to tell you all, you Al-Anons, and AAs can have it too. Here was my first apology. I said, Cliff, I want to apologize to you for the way I reacted to your childish and immature outburst. <laughs> and I'm so proud of myself. And I called my sponsor, and she quietly said, well, it's a start. But as we all know, in Al-Anon, we have to put the focus on ourselves. And that's really what this has been all about, time after time after time. And I had no idea of the relief that comes and the freedom that comes with putting the focus on myself. Because I'm going to control all of those people out there, but I can do something about myself. And it was such an amazing revelation to me that when I quit trying to change everybody else, that meant blaming them as well, and could look at my own self and acknowledge where I needed to, and change what I needed to. It was it was a freedom, a freedom that I think is, uh, to me, I don't understand a lot of these things. I don't really care if I do. There's a page in our book. It's July 20th, actually, today, which is my son's birthday, and actually my nephew's birthday, too. And it talks in there, this is the One Day at a Time book. It talks in there about our incessant need to understand. It just says it, just like that. And uh, that was me. I had to understand. And uh, eventually I got it through my head. I don't have to understand an alcoholic. I should understand alcoholism. That daughter of ours went into AA. She was sober for 11 years. And she had a very bad back and some serious problems. And she got to taking pills. She was nuts. I'd seen that before. And I knew it when I saw it. And um, she was working for me. And she was screwy and I couldn't have her in my office. So I had to fire my daughter, who was sober, so to speak. She eventually drank a glass of fine wine so she could qualify to come back to AA or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but she spent a couple of years doing that. And, you know, she's in AA now for two more years, and she's doing fine. And she talks about the awful experience of sitting in AA meetings, knowing she was getting herself nice little weekends on goodie pills. And... Uh, pretending to be different than she was. The secrets again, see. And she's doing very well. Our youngest son got sober a long time ago. He's a wonderful father and is just doing great. Our oldest son, who did the most, and he's the one that got arrested, he went on to great things in the world, so to speak. He's a very fine career. And on the outside has all the money, property, prestige. And those of us in here know that doesn't mean diddly squat. <laughs> When you're, if there's alcoholism. And uh, he drank. He, he really became a kamikaze drinker, as Cliff calls it. He would go through four quarts in three days and go, end up in the emergency room and, with alcohol poisoning. And the last time he did that, he doesn't live near us, but he did it close to home, an hour's drive away. And he was in an emergency room one more time. And um, my daughter located him and said, Mom, the emergency room doctor doesn't think he's going to live. His blood count was 0.40, and that kills people a lot of times. So we decided, my daughter and I, to get in the car and go up and tell him goodbye. And um, I did. And you know, I didn't, I just felt so sad at what this disease was doing, what it was doing to this fine young man. And I told him that. I just said, I'm just so sorry that you had to fight this, and it looks like it's, you know, it's going to take you this time. He knew too, and um, he didn't die. And he's got a year and about six months sobriety today. And he's with a fine group up where he is, a small group that just adore him. And um, I visited there last March and got to be part of his group and meet the people that have saved my son's life.
after that episode, he emailed me every day and still does once in a while. He says, I don't want to ever see that look on your face again. I didn't go up there to show him a look on my face. I went up there to tell him goodbye. And um, it's interesting, isn't it? We do things because we, we do them because we're supposed to do them. And whatever the outcome is, it is. My little mother found it too difficult to live in a house with no drinking. Well, there wasn't any drinking we knew about. Some of the kids might have been doing something in the back room, but there was no clear alcohol in the house. And she was periodic, so she went a period of time without drinking. But she couldn't keep that up. And the day came when she wanted to drink again, and I answered her differently because I've been coming to these meetings. And instead of scolding her or pretending it was okay, I told her that I loved her, that the last time she drank she had a stroke and the doctor was concerned about something else happening this time. She might not even make it. And I just couldn't participate. But she was free to get her own booze. She didn't need us to do it. And um, she's certainly welcome to come to AA. And she didn't do any of those things. Um, two days later, she also had had it, results of a stroke that were not as good as she wanted. And she had learned that. She was very depressed. And instead of getting herself some booze in that household, which would have made quite a statement, or going to Alcoholics Anonymous, she took her own life. People that didn't weren't in the midst of that wouldn't know that she, that was a suicide. But there was no question about it. The coroner thought so, too. And both Cliff and I traced back the last three days. And all the, all the well, you had to be there. But, I mean, we knew exactly. I mean, later, we knew. And, you know, because of the loving people in Allen on an AA, I never felt responsible for that. I just knew that um, I had answered her in the most um, loving way a person can. And I had faced reality but had refused to participate. And, um, and I'm okay with that. She would have loved her, though. She would have been a great AA member. Funny little lady. Um, but alcohol took her life, too. We have a few grandsons that are in college that are showing a few interesting signs. <laughs> I just let go. Life is as bumps, as we all know. And some things are very sad, and some things are scary. And I've learned today that if I'm afraid of something, I don't wait around until the, the fear stops. I do it while I'm afraid. And I learned that here. You do it while you're afraid. I've learned today that if I'm stopping myself from doing something because somebody will be angry, that that isn't a reason to make a decision. If I'm going to do something because I feel guilty, that is not a good reason to make a decision. I still work very actively with a sponsor. I have no idea what it would be like without it, but I'm going to try it. And I'm very still active in Al-Anon, especially in Al-Anon service. Um, Millie's little introduction <laughs> hasn't gone away all these years. And I'm extremely grateful. We heard the word miracle used last night by John, and sometimes we use that here, and I'm a little hesitant with that word because it seems like it ought to be big. And something, whatever that is, I don't know. Um, for me, I just like to talk about being sure I notice the grace notes in this world. And I use that phrase because if you know music at all, you know that grace notes don't get a count. They just are for free. They're just there, and they embellish the music, and it sounds lots nicer if you listen. And uh, today, because of these people in this program and the wonderful support we've gotten through a lot of tough stuff, um, I, no, I don't think I miss the grace notes. They're all there. They surround us all the time. And I urge you to listen for the grace notes, too. Thank you.